When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, we'd like to extend a warm welcome uh, here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm Adam, this is Andrew, and we have with us Karen Carbiner. Dr. Karen Carbiner. Dr. Karen. Who is a Whitman professor extraordinaire slash also the director and one of the founding members of the Walt Whitman Initiative Project, who eventually Karen will get into that. Um, so welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm so happy and to be here and to to speak with both of you. Nice to meet you, Adam. And of course, it's, Andrew, yeah. I know you for, I don't even know how long now. Quite I a think few years. since 2016. I think it was 2016. I've looked recently about oh. International Whitman Week. That's yeah. right. So we, right. At International Whitman Week 2017, 2017. was the one in Paris where we all went, right? Yes. So. Oh, and I met you in 2016 at an English department party that was outdoors in the summer. Do you remember that? That is correct because my husband is also someone that you all know. Right. Dr. Douglas Pfeiffer. Yes. Uh, associate yes. professor of English at Stony Brook. And right. have you both taken classes with Douglas? Andrew, I don't even know. You, you never took a class with Douglas, right? Oh, no, no. I took his experimental. I call it experimental. That might not be his phrasing, but the experimental um, archive his, history course that he did and took us all around um, the Northeast. But I think Adam has a very professional relationship. <laughs> Douglas. I missed out on that one. I've taken, I took uh, Renaissance humanism with him my first semester at Stony Brook. Uh, I took the history of criticism from Plato to Bart. Oh. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> uh, my second year. And then Doug became my PhD advisor. That's right. So, so that, that's a connection. We're like, Andrew and I are like academic siblings. <laughs> that's true. You're the, yeah, this could get really interesting metaphorically. So I'm going <laughs> to pivot away from this. Um, but yeah, Karen is my outside reader. So I spent a lot of time um, theoretically with Karen uh, doing different events. And we'll get into probably a lot of that during this conversation. So. Yeah. But um, now the informality, which is I... Many of these questions are ones I've always wanted to ask you, Karen, and just it's never come up in our professional affiliation. So what is your first memory of falling in love with literature? You know, that is such a great question to start with. And of course, I don't have a solid answer. But one way I can approach one is that I've been leading this creative writing club for my daughter's, uh, for my daughter and her classmates. Okay. Uh, every Friday on Zoom at six o'clock, we all get together and I design some sort of fun 
project for all of us to do, right? Like this today we'll be doing Mad Libs, not just, not just filling them out, but actually writing them because they all love Mad Libs. They're all around 10 years old, you know, the right. whole thing. Mm -hmm. So it, it's our 43rd meeting. Cause we, I started the group as a response to COVID last March. Um, and one of the things that they remind me of, because of course, all of these students love writing and reading is the passion with which you you approach your books when you're that age right especially during covid like they're all reading voraciously and many of them have just expressed such incredible devotion to louisa may alcott and not just little women but the whole series so just talking with them so much reminded me of being that age and Andrew and Adam, I must say that that was probably one of the first big reads that really clicked with me. So not just Little Women, then Little Men, Rose and Bloom, Joe's Boys, uh, you know, the whole thing. It's just, she's a phenomenal, I, I don't know, it's transcendent. And I guess a sign of that is how many movies keep coming out inspired by her especially this latest one oh, i loved that um, latest one greta gerwig oh my goodness right? what is the name of the barnard grad that that directed that movie do you all remember yeah, greta gerwig right what a fantastic reimagining in so many ways of that book but there's yeah, there's this flexibility book. of that book and i don't know i mean you know it's such a weird gender question but do guys read it i don't, don't know did either of you i never did it? andrew I think you have, right? No, I never read it. I mean, I was more interested in The Secret Garden. If we're going to talk about oh. a period. That's another huge, huge favorite of theirs. And of course, I love this book. And and that's another one that continues to live on in these fantastic movies, right? That, for me, that, that, that will bring us eventually to, to a question of what do we do with all of these late, these like 19th century British books early 20th century that um i mean the secret garden starts in in india with the yellow fever and stuff oh, like yeah. it's it's very uncomfortable to read as an adult and i know that because i did right. uh, but but i i wonder there there really is something extraordinary i keep bringing up th white i brought i i brought mm. um Mm -hmm. I brought him up on my on our last uh, talk together, Andrew and mine. Yes. Uh, his first really book, which was right now, whatever. I'm besotted. It doesn't matter. Um, but but the reason I'm bringing it up now is because that was I remember that that was that was probably my first book that I really fell in love with was the Once and Future King, mm -hmm. and a big part of it was that 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 first. Uh, book the first 200 pages has this really utopian view of education where mm -hmm. the, the the child is in command of what they want to learn and how they want to learn and the scholar who's been alive for centuries and presumably knows just about everything doesn't know what the child should do next and doesn't pretend to know wow i like that yeah i remember that book too that was a, also a favorite and there's something I mean, have both of you taught uh, Jane Austen's novels? I never have. I never actually taught her novels. Mm -mm. Okay, well, there's something about this 19th century British fiction that just people adore. And maybe it's a, 
a feeling of safety or, or just like a, a craftsmanship, right? Like yeah. Austin is such an incredible writer, but every time I teach Austin, I feel renewed. And actually just last week, I got from a former student um, who's since graduated a Pride and Prejudice candle, oh. like presumably <laughs> scented as, you know, I don't know, Lizzie might smell <laughs> or like to smell, but, uh, you know, just with a note saying, you know, just remind a memory of one of my favorite moments of my education. And I That's just really thought cute. it's really kind of, I, I mean, yeah, there's something about those wonderful, big escapist fictions, right? Superbly crafted. Cause I think Alcott also just constructs just such a good story. Yeah. Um, well, I love her ghost stories and um, have you ever read, I think it's called Behind a Mask. Oh, no, but what? I think we'll put it in, we'll put the online version in our notes for the listeners, but it is really zany and completely sordid and sexual and not at all of that little women tone. interesting when you talk about these texts I was always reading a text in correlation with a musical because I was obsessed with Broadway musicals at the same time as I was getting into heavy reading so Mm -hmm. I was more interested in oh what's L. Frank Baum's Wizard of Oz writing like compared to the movie or (laughs) you know what's the Secret Garden musical like and compared to the novel but also there was a wonderful television adaptation of the Secret Garden that I remember always watching. But like, as Adam says, once I started to get older and I realized that this is a British imperial myth also perpetuated on stereotypes um, of their colonial past in India, right? It's like, what do you do with the uncomfortableness? But I think like you're saying, Karen, there's these reimaginings now of even Emma. I saw that new Mm -hmm. Emma film. I don't know if you got a chance. I haven't seen it yet, no. But it's really... I would call it such a hijinks type of rendition, like completely out of that periodicity. There's no- Emma is a lot of fun. Yeah, there's no like, there's a critique of the highbrowness at every chance and um, nudity too, which- Oh, thank thank goodness here I was worried. Yeah, with the men though. What would Jane say? Jane would be shocked. How how, how, how do I get through a Jane Austen novel if there's no nudity? Okay. That, that's our that's our most commonly asked question from our listeners. Yeah, who's listening to this show? <laughs> no, one, so one of the things that I noticed recently during a rereading of of Pride and Prejudice is that it's she totally stole the plot from Much Ado About Nothing. Hmm. Oh, totally yeah, uh, stole it. Well, that could be. I it's mean, not I... not in a bad way. Like yeah. like what what. Pride and Prejudice is one of my favorite works. Much Ado About Nothing is one of my favorite works. Mm. I mean, it's all, it's, all, it's all good. Yeah, probably Much Ado About Nothing was ripped off from somewhere else. I yeah, mean, of course. Of course. I mean, probably, probably from Plautus or, some, yeah. or something like that. We should hold that because we're going to talk to Karen about plagiarism. So I think yes. keep that, A bit. Keep that in the Yeah, I haven't, re- but, right. I haven't really dove into that, but but it's true. It's kind of a a fine line between influence and and actually just like stealing, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. One is the uh, 
one you can be charged with well, but there and, but there are a lo- i mean there are a lot of people who do this like um I, I once saw an interview from George Martin about the first book of the Game of Thrones series. Mm-hmm. And he said, one of one of his inspirations for the arc of, sorry, uh, the Song of Ice and Fire series for the book Game of Thrones, one of his inspirations for the book Game of Thrones was there weren't enough murder mysteries set in a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. And so once you say murder mystery, you're not just saying you're not just saying like there's a guy who died and somebody is finding out who did it. No, you're you're in, you're importing almost whole cloth. All of these um, archetypes of characters: the guy who 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 seems helpful but isn't, and the like stodgy uh, investigator whom nobody likes but everybody respects, and all that stuff. And and it's all there if you if you read, or I guess watch the films. Uh, the 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 show you'll you'll see it's all there and it just has this covering of fantasy yeah the stock characterization then you're the talking stocks. about like yeah say a middle I, I think there's there's even much more deliberate plagiarism right across the board mm-hmm. um, yes. and and I think part of the reason I mean we've we've excused a lot of it I feel like you know in the same way we've excused discussions of race, uh, you know, and Whitman is such a great, you know, poet to really think about with all of these issues, but, you know, the ways in which we have forgiven the grandfathers, um, but now maybe need to look more closely at what was actually going on. Uh, Because I, I feel like Walt often was so ridiculously obvious about his plagiarism that it's almost whimsical, right? And and maybe maybe this involves a deeper look into what copyright mm. issues there were in the 19th century. Those were messy too, right? And and our idea of academic plagiarism, I feel like is is something else, right? And and what Whitman is practicing is is a much more casual um populist version of that right because a lot of times he doesn't sign these pieces right this is his journalism but still he's like ripping off full pages of other (laughs) i mean it's and and i i can't help thinking he kind of wanted to be discovered well you know andrew often he even in his um you know his self-reviews which are supposedly anonymous he (laughs) writes in such a way that you're like wait this is he he wants us to know that it is Walt Whitman faking an anonymous review. Yeah, I always funny. say that he would be an Instagram influencer right now. Like <laughs> he really was, he knew how to get clickbait material. Yeah. And like you said, wanted to be found and discovered. Like he didn't want to just hide in his house and be left to obscurity. I, there's, but well, I should also say too, no one can see this except Karen and Adam. But I'm wearing my Whitman 200 shirt. That, yeah, that says I celebrate myself and sing myself. So he's Does in the. Does he room. have eyes in that in that image? No. Wait. No, no it's, it's so just weird. a cartoon. <laughs> no. I mean, a caricature. What do you call it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, Why without eyes of all people? That's yeah. weird. So like during your journey then, like you described how you first really maybe fell for a text. Was there, did that carry with you all through say middle school, high school, 
Like, were you always following that passion with literature? Because, you know, sometimes a reader, or I've seen a lot of times in middle school, especially, there's like a falling out with literature and then you come mm -hmm. back into it again. Were you always... And I think these days too, you know, it, it's just a different animal, right? Like back in the old days when we really thought about stable English departments, and I know that even at Stony Brook, this is under question, right? Is it an English department or is it a literature department? Like, what is it? Why do we call it that? Mm -hmm. um, and, and maybe this also ties back to all of that English novel reading that we're all or used to be born with. Um, but I, you know, that love of, of literature and thinking kind of creatively about literature, sort of out of the box, Andrew, you know, kind of like, like you have been thinking too about the work that you do. And, and you know that I do, not just uh, um, academic scholarship, but public scholarship, thinking about ways to expand the idea. So I remember, for instance, when I was younger, devising a um, newsletter amongst my friends and we would, it was probably inspired by Little Women, right? I think Joe does this in, in that book, That's but so we would cute. all contribute and, you know, we'd, we'd maybe be lucky enough to Xerox it so that everybody could have a copy. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, for me, literature, uh, that, that's at the very heart of everything I do. I just fell in love hard and strong with it. And it really stayed with me. I think if you asked me more about poetry, that would be a bigger question mark. Mm -hmm. And I think that's behind a lot of my cultural activism to try to get poetry out there sooner and in a richer format. If you don't mind, go into what was your relationship like with poetry before college? Well, you know, I was a public school kid. So those of you that are listening and, and you guys, if you went through public school, you know that this was not uh, a strong suit. I, I read a lot of novels. I remember falling in love with A Tale of Two Cities and so wow. forth, but I actually don't remember reading any Whitman at all until... And, and maybe even through college until I saw at Columbia when I was getting my PhD, a class on Whitman and Dickinson. And I was like, oh yeah, that guy, he's like <laughs> around here. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I was like, yeah, I should actually get to know him. And I, and I thought Dickinson anyway would be really cool. And that was taught by someone who's moved on from Columbia um, since then, Jonathan Levin, who I think now is the provost of Mary Washington down in Richmond. So a shout out to Jonathan, who uh, just decided to offer this class. And I was actually curious with you, you all, if you have seen Whitman on syllabi, if you were exposed to Whitman in high school, because I feel like he's one of those authors that we all say, oh yeah, he's one of those great American authors, but right. because he's gay, because he talks about sexy stuff and he's like politically all over the place. I think a lot of teachers dodge him. Yeah. Um, Andrew, why don't you go first? Well, yeah, my relationship was very unique because growing up, depending on the traffic, 15 to 20 minutes to the Walt Whitman Bridge, it was always in my milieu of geography. Um, like how formal I did that. Uh, that was a good theory. Um, that was great. <laughs> someone coined that. Um, but Quite milieu. Yeah. Of oh, geography though. You have to add that. <laughs> so of course. Yeah, I would always be going back and forth, especially when you go to um, 
any sporting events, you have to pass that bridge. Um, so wow. I would- Wow, and didn't they, didn't they just paint that um, rainbow, Andrew? There, I know there was like a move to do that. There's a move, I think there's still an initiative. So we'll fit, I'll find that, yeah, for everyone. Huh. But, Makes sense. Um, so I, I think I asked my parents probably when I was very young, just who Walt Whitman is. They're like, oh, he's a very infamous poet of this area and lived in Camden. Infamous. Did they actually say infamous? Probably. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> even my relatives said, oh, he really um, was controversial. Like there's this real notion of him being controversial in the area. Um, mm. But we did read Whitman. I don't remember about middle school, but I remember reading Oh Captain, My Captain, definitely. Um, yeah. And then yeah, I did. That's, read, that's one of the safe ones. Yeah. But then in high school, we actually, I was thankful. My public school, we spent a lot of time on poetry in my high school. Like we read all of the Victorian poets. We had to do recitation. Right. Mr. Valerio, I know you're out there. You're on my Facebook right now. So thank you, Mr. Valerio. He had us do. Um, Ode on a Grecian Urn as a recitation and beautiful. Yeah, we read a lot of Shelley. Um, and also um, Mr. Lawler, who sadly passed away from cancer, but he was my queer mentor as an 11th grader. And he had us read with a queer lens, Whitman. So wow. yeah, my relationship is a little different. We read though, um, I think it was something that Whitman scholars rarely talk about, which is funny, but the noiselessly patient spider. The noiseless patient spider, I, yeah. I put it, it I put it in the Whitman children's book. That's one of those accessible Whitman poems. Yeah, poem. yeah. Yes. it's so, so powerful yeah. though. I, 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 I mean, I remember it pretty well and I probably only read it a couple of times, but I've thought about it at a fair number. Yeah, number but I, Whitman had discovered psychology by that time, you know, Richard Morris Buck, the the Canadian psychologist kind of introduced Whitman to psychology. So a lot of those older, the poems from his old age, like a noiseless patient spider reflect this new sort of transit, this cosmic consciousness, right? As it was called. So yeah, you, yes. you totally get that in that one. Yeah, so it was really, I would say, when I'd gone right to my undergrad, I knew about Whitman, but then I had a real in-depth reading of Song of Myself. And I remember clearly, I was tasked with doing a close reading paper and I chose um, Song of Myself, but specifically the 28 Bathers, so. Uh, wow, oh, yeah. how progressive of you. That's, well, you had a really rich introduction to him then. That's amazing. Yeah. But I remember writing my paper on the train ride in New Jersey. And I'm like, Whitman would have loved this. Absolutely. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I'm curious about Adam because Adam's from Long Island, so. Correct. Um, so what I remember very clearly is falling in love with the poem, Oh, Captain, My Captain, mm -hmm. when I was at an impressionable age. I want to say somewhere between 14 and 16. Mm -hmm. um, but not really being introduced to, to much of anything else. Maybe some other short poems. Um, was this around the time that Dead Poet Society was released by any chance? I don't think so. I think that was much earlier. Okay. Um, You're not that old, Adam. <laughs> sad, sadly not. I, uh, I'm working on it. Anyway, um, 
my I don't my remember f- when that movie was released so no no nothing intended there i don't no, no, no. I, Karen's not don't throwing any shade. <laughs> i remember that when my mom watched the movie with my brother i was um i was like sitting with them just because wh- why not it was you know family hanging out together <laughs> and then mom knew what was coming so she made me leave the room mm-hmm. but i i heard the gunshot yeah um anyway such a touchstone for people especially still haven't seen it oh my gosh it's i I think it's fantastic it totally holds up i'm sure i I do Uh, robin williams is you know you know that his uh reading of whitman is used was used by apple right for that ipad commercial a couple of years ago cool but um i did i did get seriously into whitman um during college but not not until late i i want to say it was junior year i'd already um decided to be an english major and i was taking a class called american epic poetry and we went through (coughs) where was this adam at columbia i thought i remember that yeah um and we went to we went through a bunch of different uh I could just list some names. Gwendolyn Brooks was in there. Uh, Whitman, of course, was in there. Hart Crane, uh, HD. Great. Um, But not Pound. Um, People already know my thoughts about Pound. (laughs) (laughs) And um, the professor did spend a fair amount of time talking about the some of the more controversial elements of Whitman, but I don't think we 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 spent a lot of time on the like racist mm-hmm. uh, sort of I don't know what to call it exactly. It it's it, it's it's almost it's just a the presence of racism in and around his work because it's not. I mean, he's imbibing. He, he's drinking from the local river, so to speak. Yeah, I think, you know, at the the later poems, uh, well, actually not even the poems, the later journalism, um, but those, the early poems are very radically supportive of anti-slavery and and even Black rights. You know, you read a poem like I Sing the Body Electric and, you know, again, but you're right, like from, you've got to approach it from that 19th century lens, right? The way that he talks about it may still not be the way that we talk about it now, but in his own voice, he was trying to fiercely defend the humanity of the black man, right? The humanity of the black woman in that poem. So, but you're right. There is a, though contains a lot of racist statements. Like I just remember the journalism about when a black man is being rescued by a firefighter and he's like, well, why would that black man's life be worth anything? And- well, that you're talking about the the prelude to that passage in Song of Myself, where he talks about the mashed fireman with breastbone broken. Um, Ed Folsom clarifies this whole relationship in that in an essay that he contributes to Whitman Noir, which is such a good book That's to a, pick up very good book. if you're if anyone is interested in following up on, you know, Whitman and racism. But what happens there, Andrew, is really interesting. It, it was a black fireman, 
that died that inspired Whitman to write that passage. But as Ed points out in his piece, somehow the blackness of the fireman gets eradicated. And the only sign of it is that the, onlook, on the onlookers to that event are described as having white faces. So when you read it, you're like, why are their faces white? Is this because of fear or trepidation? But I think maybe in an earlier draft that Whitman discarded, you know, he had actually thought about juxtaposing black and white right there. Yeah, um, but there's also, there's actually, I'll link it here, but there's a journal essay where he talks about a black firefighter. Like oh, a okay, yeah. A black man who needs help from a firefighter. I'll find it. It's, it's also, well, this is really on my mind because Adam and I have been talking about, and I think it's good to tell my listeners, I have an R&R right now with um, 19th century gender studies on- Let's yeah, revise and resubmit. Yes, thank you, Adam, um, for the listeners, um, about the virtual walking tours and how to use VoiceThread in your classroom. And the whole special issue is about transgressive pedagogy and specifically Bell Hooks's idea of teaching to transgress. And um, the revision was really asking, well, you know, why, why do I use Whitman as a way to bring in Langston Hughes and James Baldwin and their critiques of him, but also like why he continues to be read. So like, what's the, right? It's a real tenuous relationship. <laughs> and like, I agree with you, Karen, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, in my opinion, there's much more queer radicalism in Whitman than there is in terms of race relations. Like, I think he doesn't get to that race relationship equality, especially late in his life. I turn to when he really hunkers down on repatriation and mm -hmm. um, the, like freed blacks going back to Africa, um, which was, I think I know, Karen, you've written about this. There's a really, well, link it. I keep saying link it, but it's something you really should read is Karen's um, article for CNN that you wrote. And I remember you describe really this messy relationship and you bring up Lavelle Porter's article, Should Walt Whitman Be Canceled? And I think Harmony Holiday has an article mm -hmm. too. Um, we, yeah, Harmony was on a panel with me at the Brooklyn Public Library that kind of opened all of this up. And it was really interesting because that was 2019 when there were a lot of celebrations going on and, you know, all sorts of beard competitions and lighthearted ways of, you know, acknowledge Adam, you, you'd be right up there, by the way. Yeah, I have, our listeners don't, don't know this, but very serendipitously, I have Whitman hair right now. I've got the, <laughs> oh the bushy, the bushy beard, the long locks. There's a whole, I, I, maybe you know this, but a whole philosophy behind behind that, right? Like the, the idea of a bearded, I, I mean, Lincoln, um, Whitman's serious hero did the same thing, right? Like the first bearded president. Uh, That's but right. that idea- But not the, not the first facial haired president. Okay, see you I don't know, but- <laughs> Right, I mean, a lot of the others had things like mutton chops and so on. But back to this panel, because I'm very curious. Sorry, I'm gonna- Sorry, these are uh, important. Anyway, Andrew, these are important know, matters. <laughs> direct the conversation. But, 
but was a really interesting yeah the panel was really interesting and harmony is is it was wonderful and everybody was wonderful on that panel uh, but you know we took a vote even at the beginning of the panel and at the end of the panel if Whitman should be canceled this unfortunate phrase that I'm glad has sort of sort of fizzled out a bit um, and in the beginning well, the majority said yes, but by the end, people, the majority said no, um, just as a result of kind of talking things through. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated issue with Whitman as it is a complicated issue with so many writers. I'm sure you all are reading about all of these people that we have, you know, idolized. And I, and I actually will say this, that Whitman never, wanted to be idolized. And I think rightly so, right? Like he has an essay in Specimen Days against monuments. Mm. So I actually thought about pulling that out when everybody started talking about remove the Whitman monument at Camden, remove the Whitman monument in front of the Walt Whitman Mall. Um, Walt, Walt just didn't like monuments. He thought that this was not, you know, th this was putting someone literally above you. Yeah. So I think it's actually very Whitmanic to look at him squarely. And that's, I guess, what I was talking to you about plagiarism too, right? Like just, just being honest. This is the, the way, I think this is a timely approach now to the people that we've always said kind of forefront um, our culture studies. Yeah, but I'm so glad you bring this up, Karen, because it also, having a professional relationship to you it allows for this vulnerability to happen right now where it's important to really reckon with yes. Whitman's racism. And that because you see that, it doesn't mean you can't read Whitman and no one's advocating. Right. I mean, I don't, yeah, like you're talking about cancel. We can't, we don't have to go into cancel culture, but I have my own thoughts of just how bombastic that phrase is in terms of clickbaitiness like it really sells it's a marketing strategy but when it it gets down to it like I advocate well we really should be reading uh Sojourner Truths like or read the oral transcript really read Harriet Jacobs read Frederick Douglass like Whitman shouldn't be a vacuum and mm -hmm. and I do wonder like is there a divide right now in Whitman's scholarship, because I've been asked this actually by the editors of this journal. They're like, are you putting yourself on the line, Andrew, for saying, well, we should reckon with Whitman's talking about slavery? Because he actually talks about, you know this, Karen, he talks about his slavery legacy. He mentions mm. how many slaves his family owned. It's not hidden. He writes about it with Horace Traubel. And, you know, and then quickly turns to the history of Roslyn and how wealthy New Yorkers are settling there, which I think is always interesting to see how Whitman's association just, you know, he can go from this one heady subject to wealthy New Yorkers, which actually is probably related because of slave capitalism. Um, and who's actually working these mansions in the gilded, eventual gilded age, but mostly black people who are impoverished in that area, right? And segregation, which, you know, there's a whole history of that. Um, but yeah, so I would ask you, do you think that there is a divide, a dividing line happening in Whitman scholarship or is it maybe 
just more of my nervousness as a young scholar that I'm putting myself on the line. Well, I think it's a moment that um, it's great to remind yourself that uh, we should have a broader perspective on what we read. I think that serious Whitman scholarship is still very much going on, right? Like I'm part of this huge NEH grant this year to look at the journalism. Okay. You know, the NEH continues to be very generous with, with uh, Whitman scholarship. Um, but I also think that, you know, it's time to assess too, like to, to look at things squarely as we talked about. I, I you know, for, for me, I've been very active on the LGBTQ plus front with Whitman. And I feel very strongly about that. Uh, that's the motivation for Live Oak with Moss, the book that Brian Selznick and I came out with in 2019. And just mm -hmm. next month actually is gonna be released as a really beautiful paperback. <gasps> which oh. we're, we're very excited about because it's going to be more accessible. The, the hardcover we designed as this beautiful book, but it was really expensive and the paperback um, will be much less pricey and perhaps even more beautiful in some ways. Okay. Um, it's got like the built-in black bookmarks and, you know, you know, Brian did a really just stunning job kind of newly covering that book. Um, yeah, I but I think edition. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's okay. But but you know, for the reasons of poems like Live Oak with Moss and Calamus, I mean, Whitman will never wind up disappearing. He's far too important as a as America's first real gay spokesperson. Mm -hmm. um, you know about uh, about individual about identity. I, I mean, it's so profound, right? And for a lot of people, that's their touchstone with Whitman. Mm -hmm. So this is not to say though, that we should ignore the race issue. And I'm like, we're, we keep on talking about, I think this is the day to be candid. I think I feel good about where we're heading, right? I think people are actually nicer. I don't know if it's COVID. Um, I don't know if it's sort of a new openness led by Black Lives Matter and other movements where, you know, I feel like people are woke, they're waking up. So there's definitely change happening in the academy and we need to rethink and really closely consider who we read and who we get our students to read. Yeah. Uh, but well, I, you know. And I'll admit too, like, and we, I might take this out. I always say this, whenever there's a moment where I say, and we'll take it out, we never take it out. But <laughs> I preface it just because it's a moment of vulnerability for me. So I want to admit that, that as a queer Whitman scholar, I'm actually situating myself in my writing as that um, with this article because they want me to, because it's a pedagogy article. And I agree with them. Like I want, like it does, it informs how I approach these tours, like how I came out and understood Whitman. And I do feel with some of the scholars that I'm, it's not the normative experience. Being a queer Whitman scholar, I actually feel very tangential. Like, I feel well, like- you know, there's, yeah. Right, but there's, there's wonderful role models on this. Like Gary comes immediately to mind, right? Gary Schmidtfell. Yeah. Um, and I think actually, at least from my perspective, it is time to reevaluate all of these older standards that we've been living with, you know, not inserting yourself in your criticism. You know, it's always been a taboo to sort of like be 
invisible behind those words. But maybe, maybe you are on the cusp of a wave of a new type of criticism, a more considered and personalized criticism. The auto you know, yeah, there's like this whole auto theory turn now happening. Well, the uh, unfortunately, the the type of article Andrew's talking about is a pedagogy article, and you can't you literally can't erase yourself from your teaching because, duh. Um, but I hope that it spreads to other forms of literary inquiry as well. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and I agree with you, Karen. That, um, like in in my opinion, like just the work I'm doing, it matters that Wilde looks up to Whitman and the way he's getting erotic information for poetics and why John Addington Simmons starts to call himself a Calamite. Like this is all about mm -hmm. Whitman's queer erotic influence on these men. And yeah, I agree with you. I do think it's being embraced and it might just be the precarity of the Academy that I feel too, which we can't diminish right. how precarious you feel as a PhD. Right. 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 No, yeah, that's, that's, that's worrisome. Yeah. It, it may just be a, an act as if circumstance. Like you have to, you have to act as if, um, as if we're going in the right direction and, hmm. and trust that you'll find a place. I mean, obviously Karen is a testament to the fact that there are Whitman scholars out there who are not going to piss on you for being, <laughs> no. for being, uh, attentive to the queerness and the problems mm -hmm. right to for for to see see Whitman as this like important figure in American history because of what he did as a gay poet but also to see him as just in in other ways unfortunately infected with the the issues of his of his day and thus not really susceptible to the kinds of hero narratives that we wish maybe yeah. that I think that I think I wished when I was first reading him would yeah. apply because you know I, he seemed like this amazing figure and he is he is he was and yet that will happen that will have its limits well and it's interesting like all the critiques happening everyone always says Whitman's poetry is beautiful I mean, like if there's anything at the end of the day, everyone recognizes the merit of the aesthetic. Right. And he, and he never really, you know, crosses the line. It's as if he knew that the poetry was sacred, right? The poetry is never uh, offensive about race. Um, you know, it's just, he, it's the journalism, you know, and the private That's things that Horace Traubel recorded. Right, and and a lot of that journalism is really, from what I've looked at, is is anonymous, right? So it's as if Whitman really knew that maybe he was speaking to one population with the journalism and the other with the poetry. Maybe the poetry would transcend and the journalism would get lost. Yeah. Um, I think <clears throat> Whitman really actually probably did think that way, right? That a lot of his journalism, hopefully would get lost. And perfect examples are like Jack Engel, right? A terrible mm -hmm. novel that, <laughs> that we now have and we can see where he started or Manly Health and Training, which is just, I teach it actually, I love it. It's, I think it's ridiculous and fun, but you can see why <laughs> Whitman never mentions it, 
right? Like in none of his writings, he never, never mentions, and he uses a pseudonym. He's Mose Velser when he writes that. Wait, what's this? Manly health and training? Yeah, it's kind of like a keto manual for um, diet and exercise, and Good it's Lord. actually incredibly funny and uh, just really over the top. Wait, is it purposely funny? I think so. I think that Walt is being purposely funny. You'll have to look at it, though, Adam. It, it's come out in uh, a really fun kind of paper. Um, gosh, I think one of my virtual backgrounds, not that our listeners can benefit from this, but I like them so much that. Oh, oh that is uh, wonderful. Oh, wait. <laughs> some you know, of these like pop as, editions. As Karen describes it, I'm going to take a picture because. All right. I have to include images. So there you See, go. See, like this is on developing both intellect and body. It actually like speaks to Whitman's body soul thing. You'll have to you'll have to send us a few of these stills so that we can include them in the in the notes because oh that's so weird. And, <laughs> on and... rejecting a sedentary life. So Whitman is all about that, right? And I think that's why a lot of us really kind of just adore him because he is like a defender of the body and you know the life of the mind isn't just about observing it's actually about doing yeah. and subverts so and like always subverts the normative idea about like isn't doing a health manual in this style a la sylvester graham um Although going back to the plagiarism, Andrew, he actually rips off those guys. He yeah. like word yeah. for word rips off like uh, health manuals that preceded his. So you know we're like, talking about because Sylvester Graham is so against pleasure or like against what we would call the uninhibited sexuality. Of I mean, I'll say it, masturbation. Um, and and <laughs> where we have a. No. A poet who wrote a poem celebrating masturbation. Do you remember the title, Andrew? Oh gosh, is it not to whoever you are now holding me, to whoever you are holding me now in hand? <laughs> Adam, that would be a perfect title for a masturbation oh, poem, but that is not. I it. think it's, it's in uh, spontaneous me. Spontaneous me. Okay, is Which that is also I, a really good title for a masturbation? Poem? Or is that in Children of Adam? That is actually in Children of Adam. Yeah, yeah. Enfant d'autumn, as he would say. <laughs> yeah, but I, well, I definitely feel that, Karen, you are stalwart in supporting the kind of queer work I do. So there's, you know, in this whole conversation, there are definitely Whitman scholars, Karen among them, who have my back. As I think there's, the majority are really trying to honestly listen to the critiques and just understand where the field moves. And I think it moves in, like you said, looking at Whitman in like just looking at him and being honest about the record and also seeing what really is radical in terms of poetics. And like you're saying about masturbation, I mean, that is very unconventional. Like 
you know, well, it still makes 18 year olds blush when you, when you teach spontaneous me, right. It's kind of ridiculous that he's got like a four page poem, you know, and he talks about the hairy bee going up and down on the flower. I mean, it's like, he's, he's just like too much. Right. But I think again, Adam purposefully funny. I, yeah. I really think that's true with Whitman. Um, I think that, you know, considering his popular appeal as Whitman really wanted to, you know, he didn't want to be an academic poet. He didn't want to be scrutinized under the academic lens. He wanted people to read this stuff. So that was really the impetus for Live Oak with Moss, you know, this celebration of Whitman's queerness in so many ways, but also through I won't say erotic imagery, but definitely Brian's beautiful sketches are suggestive and um, very sensual. But but trying to get people to appreciate how incredibly forward-thinking Whitman was about this, mm-hmm. uh, and you know how it helps people. I think for me, and maybe for you too, Andrew, with the public scholarship, I'm very proud of the wonderful things that you've been doing with that. And going back to the academy and what is or is not acceptable. I mean, public scholarship isn't actually that acceptable, right? Like institutions claim they're very happy when they have professors doing it. But, you know, I don't see a whole lot of support for that kind of work and myself personally, right? That's why we founded the Whitman Initiative Mm -hmm. as this center for free poetry related events for celebrating poetry, for preserving New York's legacy of poetry, uh, because I don't think our institutions are as invested as they should be in that. So the Whitman Initiative is, you know, we're all working for free, right? There's no one on salary there. And when we've got interns now, we've got a, a wonderfully expanding group, but it is uh, uh, an institution in that public service that I feel like was not being um, recognized by institutions. So just because these institutions don't do things doesn't mean that we shouldn't. Yes. Uh, but I, I do think when you're just going out there for a job and it's like post COVID and all this craziness, like, you know, it's scary. Right. Um, well, yeah. so that that's the question that Andrew and I have come back to I don't want to say every time we have a conversation, but it seems like every other time, which is all of this stuff that we're trying to do that doesn't fall under the incredibly restrictive categories of publishing articles and and right. workshopping our dissertations into books and stuff like that. Does, like, does it count? Does it count with a hiring committee? Hmm. Well, I think that... Um... It counts with new ways of thinking about uh, being an educator. And I've encouraged Andrew to think about this too, that you know, getting a spot in an English or literature department isn't the only way to, to really celebrate all the stuff that you've been doing. There's all sorts of humanitarian ways. And you know, that NEH job that I think I sent you, or I think about the ACLS uh, public scholarship initiative, which is now not only for graduate students, but also for professors. Um, But thinking about, you know, thinking about extending what you love 
in other ways, whether that's working for an organization, a 501c3, a nonprofit, or working, you know, in an institution like a museum or somewhere else that promotes this sort of, uh, you know, public outreach. But I think that's, if you guys do stuff like this, this show, for instance, which reminds me of our robust American love speaker series at the Whitman Initiative, mm-hmm. and we're all doing it, right? And, and I don't think NYU really, uh, you know, it's not so much on the radar of NYU. Um, I just consider it for the public good, right? Like that's, that's it. And if I were on the job market, I would hopefully think that an organization like NEH, for instance, would would think very highly of this kind of public outreach. Yeah, well, and I can speak to that robust American love series. Well, first, um, as we're recording this, this week, there was a moving, I mean, it was so heartfelt of honoring Greg Truppiano's memory. And, um, you know, I share a lot of conversations in my mind with him that, he really showed me about Whitman and opera and I'll hold that. Well, and also loves Sarah was in Sarasota, which is a place I love a lot in Florida and have family memories there. So just even being able to watch that on YouTube, Karen, and I encourage everyone to, we'll have the link to your YouTube channel and become a subscriber. Oh, great. Um, yeah, because next month we have uh, Jason Koo on, who's the director of Brooklyn Poets, which is a phenomenal organization, right? Phenomenal. Jason is a poet also, so he's going to be fabulous. But thank you for bringing up the Greg Truppiano tribute that we just had, which anyone can still watch because they get posted at the Whitman Initiative YouTube channel. And this is a perfect example, Adam and Andrew. And Adam, I don't know if you know Greg at all. I didn't Um, But he was a yeah, I think he went to, to college, but that wasn't part of it. And he never really wanted to write a book. He was just really interested in giving historical tours involving Whitman around Brooklyn and staging public events like the glorious contralto Nicole Mitchell yes. would sing in Fort Greene Park, a poem that Whitman wrote and anybody could come and listen. And uh, the remarkable thing, guys, is that after the show, we were all, the, all the guests were talking together and crying and remembering Greg. And Lon, his partner of 38 years, said he has a huge archive of Greg's tours, all of these programs for tw- 20 plus years of public service with not one penny exchanged. And I told him, the Whitman Initiative with our building library, we will take that archive, right? I consider that an incredibly important archive, even though, generally speaking, I don't think an institution like NYU would take it. You know, this is not a famous person. He's not a scholar. Uh, You know, he never published anything, but he was an individual that profoundly impacted life in Brooklyn for the better, right? A true force for good and just introduced so many people to poetry, uh, brought music to people who might not otherwise hear it, um, and that's the type of thing we want to do at the Whitman Initiative, highlight those lives that tend to get sort of like put into the corners or in between the lines. But Greg, 
deserves much more than just like one show like that. And COVID has stopped us from doing more, but I, I would really like to find a bigger way to celebrate what he did for Brooklyn. Yeah. Well, and well, if you don't know, Karen, and I don't think the listeners know this, Karen was my eye-opening insight into what a walking tour looked like on Long Island, because you had given a tour of Jane's Hill. And then, I mean, now I've, listeners now have seen that I did a YouTube of that during the pandemic. And I'm now like on the walking tour Long Island circuit, as I call it, which is, <laughs> do not have one in Roslyn on Whitman and Brian's history. And then- Oh, that's great. Yeah, and also talking about how Edith Wharton gets homoerotic inspiration from him for her poetry. So I've kind of like opened that up, but I credit just what you talk about with the initiative, Karen. And it is true, like my writing wouldn't be the same if I didn't have that public component. It just, I wouldn't know the community. And I, when I talk about Whitman and Wilde meeting in Camden and got to do that with the birthplace on Zoom, and it's now on YouTube. Um, those who reached out to me, and I'm sure you, the same thing happens with you at, with the Whitman Initiative, is you just hear from the community. And right. I hear from LGBTQ performers or scholars or those who have come out and Whitman or Someone else I talk about, like Call Me By Your Name by Andre Osman, which I put a lot in conversation with Song of Myself. They're like, I see myself now. And, you know, I understand that because I saw myself and I was coming to terms with my sexuality. So the reason I went into a PhD program is I wanted to be seen. You know, I've always wanted to be validated and affirmed for who I love. And right, like that's the part of my situatedness I don't talk about a lot because it's not really, <laughs> doesn't come up in the academy's conversation, but right, I'm sure you have that type of affiliation to just the passion you have. When I see you, I've gotten the very pleasurable experience to be at Karen's um, Summer Whitman uh, Columbia course she does, where she takes us jaunting all throughout New York City and cool. your passion and enthusiasm and all the conversations everyone has you really have built such a community Karen well thank you Andrew that that actually means a lot to me and I mean the I, I think the direction for all of this is to parlay this into greater public good mm -hmm. right like uh, just a couple of days ago I was reading about um, I don't know if you remember Lisa New, who read at last year's online Song of Myself marathon, but Lisa is a, is a Harvard professor who did the Poetry in America series, mm. and she did the Walt Whitman series, which I, I was part of that very proudly. Um, Lisa has a new initiative, uh, which is an education program for yeah. underprivileged students to introduce them to Ivy League classes. Um, and I think you can still look it up at the New York Times. There was a big article about this just recently about Lisa's new project, which I think is absolutely fantastic, right? To start really thinking about ways to break down the walls that we've all gotten so used to, um, to admit 
new talent and new perspectives uh, into, you know, the, these elite classrooms that have been closed for so long. And I guess that's just in general part of doing public scholarship. You are by definition opening up the classroom, right? You're saying that, you know, you, I think Douglas would reach back probably to a, a Greek term, right, Adam, to the paideia, which was the idea in Greece that your education didn't stop with your in assigned readings, right? Like you kept reading mm. on your own because you were actually interested in it. Or, you know, to rephrase it, like if you were studying health, um, you didn't turn around and eat potato chips after the class, right? Like right. you actually practiced it. So I think that's part of the movement that you younger folk are really kind of going to be lucky enough to experience much in a much more rich way than I did when I got out. Uh, and hopefully there, that will result in jobs and recognition, you know, placement at, at, in doing things that bring you great reward. Because certainly teaching is not the only thing, right? Teaching is great, but so is the sort of public form of education that, Andrew, I know that you have been uh, doing, you know, so beautifully. And really on Long Island, which I think is one of the places that really needs it. Right in the city, we've got like a lot of stuff going on. Like for instance, Lavelle Porter, who is now a member of the Whitman Initiative. I was talking to him the other day and I didn't realize he did tours also. You know, he teaches at City Tech at CUNY and he's giving Whitman tours in Fort Greene Park. I was like, how do we not see each other? All of us doing these tours. <laughs> so, so New York City is rich with That's this adorable. kind of stuff. But You're like the wandering rocks. Yeah. But but Long Island, this is a great place to bring this energy. It is. History. We need it. Long Island is a cultural sinkhole. Like you guys, like a Jupiter Hammond tour, you know, Jupiter Hammond meets yes. Walt Whitman tour. Yeah. Like that, that's that's high, high on my list, man. It's just like get people talking about that really interesting, not exactly intersection, yeah, but yeah. Uh, two lives that kind of almost do in the way in which we could dialogue the, the two of them, especially because they are so close in terms of, you know, geography. Yeah. Um, oh, if our what, listeners don't know, Jupiter Hammond was the first Black poet, um, like, who was really published and sadly dies in obscure, well, in an unmarked grave on the Lloyd Estates on what is now Lloyd Harbor, um, which jettisons right off of Huntington. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, Karen, I see all of these pathways, literally, right, pathways <laughs> crossing. And um, I've had the privilege and benefit of interacting with those who are on these virtual tours, who I get to see. Karen has been on in the Zoom room, I've seen Yay! it. Yes. Of course, of course I Wonderful. want to see what you're doing. Yeah, and beautiful job. Thank you. And like, just even talking about, oh, this is Native American land and what, yeah. like, what was actually going on in the history here, which, yeah, it's wonderful. Like I live right near the Culper Spy Ring history and there's been a lot of those types of Long Island tours of like mm -hmm. live like the Gilded Age or, mm -hmm. um, you know, go to the tea room of the revolution, right? It's a lot of what right. I would call the um, fantasy, 
Right, right. Well, so this brings us full circle to um, to basically what we were talking about at the very beginning, the idea of of how you bring real issues into what is otherwise escapist fun, mm. right? Mm. Those those um, those Jane Austen novels and stuff like that. And how, um, yeah, we're back again. <laughs> Well, I, I remember um, going to Raynham Hall Museum mm. in Oyster Bay uh, before, just before everything hit the fam last year, because I was invited um, by John Hank, who's a Newsday journalist, and he wanted to evaluate a new tour that they were doing, mm. in which they weren't talking about the typical, I think the Townsend family lived there and they were very prestigious and did all these you know, wonderful revolutionary things, but they actually did the tour from the slaves point of view mm -hmm. because they've recently recognized that there were slaves there and they wanted to reimagine living in that house, right? And living at that time. And I thought uh, it was phenomenal. They even did something that I thought, you know, maybe it's childish, but I thought it was really effective. They had uh, images of footprints and you would step with your feet on those footprints and you were oh, told. That's really sweet, actually. Yeah. So my daughter went along too, and, and we both got a lot out of it. So I think sometimes reimagining the tour yeah, you know the the whole thing is how do you get the public invested in this, and I feel like that's part of a spirit of the age, you know, and maybe that moves more slowly when once you leave New York City, but still, there's waves that travel out there, mm -hmm. um, and it's it's reliant on institutions, right? Like the Whitman Birthplace, um, and I have suggested to Cynthia that we we think about like a, a Whitman tour from the slave's point of view. Yeah. Right. I don't think that there were slaves at that house, right? Like, I don't think that there were slaves at the Whitman birthplace. Yeah, but there but, was but, at Nathaniel Whitman's house because that's where the unmarked slave grave. Right. And by the way, that house, which you thank you for telling me is up for sale. I just want to shout out to this for anyone who's listening that that house is actually for sale and has in its backyard a very important historical site, which includes the Whitman family uh, cemetery and a series, remember that, Andrew, of the mm -hmm. little unmarked uh, gravestones, which supposedly, according to Rick, who, who is moving out of there, belong to the slaves. So they actually buried them in the Whitman cemetery, but with these little unmarked yeah. stones. Oh, yes. And I actually, yeah, go ahead. So this gets into like about um, historic sites preservation. I think we'll have a nice segue here, but um, that's wonderful to hear that Cynthia, the executive director of the birthplace, um, she's receptive or you're really with her reimagining how the tours could take on a specific um, look through like the Whitman family's slave eyes um yeah or, i think also i heard there was a talk about um through a queer lens as well right as, these well i think didn't you call them is there a specific name for these sub tours or are they just like special topic tours 
Yeah, I don't think I, there's a specific name for it, but I mean, certainly you can still do sort of the historic house tour, right? That's always going to be a draw and they need money. So that makes sense. But what also helps open up a, a community or Long Island is to have institutions recognize that they could be offering alternative tours right. to those that really want to explore these things, you know, to put them on the map. So, you know, I love the tea time stuff that the Whitman birthplace does, and that's a huge seller for them. It's, it's a lovely experience. And, you know, Margaret, Margaret Guardi does that. She's she so knowledgeable. I'm not saying to knock any of that down. They're, they're wonderful. But at the same time, wouldn't you be interested, you know, to find out, like, if you were a slave here, like, what was right. it like? Well, what, what's ironic, of course, I mean, I, I think what you're, what you're talking about is, is really, really gets to the heart of what's so troubling about historical reenactment is, and sort of mm. historical fantasy, I guess, is that you always end up fantasizing yourself into a position of privilege, mm. which is fun and fine, but it doesn't, it's not likely. It's like, um, it's like hitting a bullseye when you know nothing about darts. You're more likely to end up on the rim, if anywhere. Yeah. And so, the this the idea of like I I'm sort of imagining a tea party where where you're the one who has to serve tea and then you furtively <laughs> take take the ends of the sandwiches and eat them in the kitchen. Ooh, that goes along with I hear America singing, right? Or Langston Hughes, Andrew, you could yes. fit that right in. Right, yeah, I also you're right, like on the margins. I mean, and I think, like you're saying, is the infrastructure that exists already. It's not that you're, you know, taking a demolition crew and you're gonna just take it all away. It's like, okay, well, how can we expand? How can you build a part? Right, exactly. How can we add to it? And it's um. Like, I just remember um, where that's really present is when you um, go to Alexandria or DC, or especially I know at Mount Vernon, um, George Washington's home, uh, they are very, if you just even go on the website, they do a really good virtual tour um, of like, and here were his slaves and here are their names. And like, this is the history. And the same thing is true of the newly opened a few years ago, Revolutionary Museum of Philadelphia, which is so incredible. Um, probably one of my favorite museums that I've ever toured because there's like, well, what was it like through women's eyes? What was it like through Native Americans eyes? Through like those who were freed um, black Americans and those who were slaves like and you just see all the levels right it's not oh and here are the founding fathers okay bye <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's great and, and that's so yeah that's so boring now anyway right like right. like we we know that story I I mean what we're really talking about is education right just keeping on educating the public about new perspectives that come out and 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 Walking a mile in someone else's shoes, yeah. Yeah, well, and, you know, you're a project you're really, you've been present with from its inception is through the Whitman Initiative. If you could talk just a little about um, preserving Ryerson Street, uh, the historic house that Whitman published 
1855 leaves of grass in, is that correct, Karen? He did a lot, but thank you, Andrew, for letting me put in a word about this. For, for those that are listening and are interested in this, um, you can visit the Walt Whitman Initiative uh, website to learn more about our Ryerson Street Initiative. So Andrew is talking about 99 Ryerson Street um, in Clinton Hill in Brooklyn, where Whitman was living. Where in is Clinton Hill? Sorry. It's kind of above Pratt Institute and uh, just south of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. It's a bit further out. Mm. You know, it's not Brooklyn Heights. It's not near the city. You really have to go for a nice long journey down Myrtle Avenue. And that itself, Andrew, Adam, is really uh, relevant because the Whitmans didn't have a lot of money. So mm -hmm. when they lived in this house and Emerson went to visit Whitman while he was in that house, mm. um, you know, he had to go way out on Ryerson. This was not like tourist Brooklyn mm -hmm. at that time. Um, and it's a very modest house. It doesn't look good at all, right? It's, it's sort of falling apart a bit. It's very much a neighborhood house. The, the same family has owned it since I think the 1980s, if not the 1970s. Um, and this is the birthplace of Leaves of Grass. This is where Whitman was living when he finished and published the first edition of Leaves of Grass. It's where Emerson went to visit him. It's where his first pilgrims went to visit him. Mm. You know, just like looking, searching everywhere for this guy on what Ryerson Street? Where is that? Yeah. So in many ways, it's the cradle of American poetry. Yeah, and isn't it's it interesting, sorry, I'm just putting this together now as you're talking about it, Karen, but it's literally like you could draw this line of West Hills, the birth home, Ryerson Street, and the Camden House. Like it literally all follows a trajectory. Um, the Bermuda Triangle of Walt Whitman. There you go. <laughs> just, let's, not get, let's not get sucked in because that frightened me. <laughs> We are. That's the problem. Yeah, you've been lost in that for years. But so, so what's the current status then? Like, how can listeners, you know, they can follow this at the Whitman Initiative and sign the petition. Um, well, the the reason that this house is important, besides the the reasons I just gave, is Whitman lived in over thirty different buildings when he lived in New York City. So we have the Walt Whitman birthplace, as you know, in West Hills, where he was born. We have the Camden House, where he died. But this very rich period when he became a poet and actually published probably the three greatest editions of Leaves of Grass, 55, 56, and 60. He was living and moving around because his father was an alcoholic and, you know, terrible manager of money. And um, the family just was not at rest, right? So they just moved and moved. And that's why they only lived in that house for about a year. And the Landmarks Preservation Commission has declared that not enough, not enough time, uh, even though all of those things happened. And they also don't like the changes that happened to that house because in the late 19th century, someone added a top floor. You know, now it's encased in vinyl siding. Um, but our, our reasoning with them has always been that there are buildings that, you know, people own and they don't know about historic preservation. So they put vinyl siding on them, right? Some things are mansions and that's what has right. the, been the tendency to be landmarked. The things that have remained pretty and true to their time because people, the caretakers of those buildings are educated and know to do that. Well, even those then, things, you often see a lot of these like very prestige buildings like uh, palaces and mansions and 
uh, churches that have three or four different architectural styles. Right. So no, if, if like Hamp if Hampshire Castle gets to have a new wing, then why doesn't the Whitman house on Ryerson Street get to have one? It's such a good point. All right, you, you were in the middle of... No, 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 thank you. You're, you're absolutely right, Adam. Thank you for that. Um, so what, what I'm trying to say is the Whitman, uh, this, we call it the Leaves of Grass House. It's just one example of many different buildings in Queens and the Bronx yeah. and the, the outer reaches, right? Like not beautiful centered Manhattan, but maybe, you know, like a house further afield um, that's been changed. But still, if you believe in the poetry of place, and if you ask me, that's what landmarking is about. Yeah. Um, you want to save this. You want people, I want my students to walk up to this building and say, really? You know, American poetry started here? This is no mansion in Lenox, Mass. You know, this is like a working class yeah. house, like just basic and even now just kind of on the edge. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's, it's an atypical house to save. And mm. that's why it's suffered a lot and been denied twice by wow. the Landmarks Preservation Oof. Commission for landmarking. So it's, it's so an anti-monument. Because Long Island, Long Island hasn't really done that with a lot of, right? We have the Whitman birthplace, right? Okay, I guess there's the Krasner and Pollock House um, too uh, for their con contributions to the Hampton scene. Um, but how about Jupiter Hammond? Like there's not really mention of his, even though the estate is there um, and part of the park. But I even think, I just saw F. Scott Fitzgerald's home go up for sale in Great Neck. Well, actually Kings Point specifically. But um, things and, also, yeah. Well, and yeah. they're just selling it privately, which is so fascinating. Right. And these properties, you know, there's not as much care as you would like, right? The Tesla uh, factory way out on the island was just recently purchased, actually, by a group of Tesla fans hmm. who managed through Indiegogo or something yes, to raise I heard about that. of dollars to <laughs> yeah. save it and are now turning it into a museum, which I think is fabulous and very much a model for us uh, trying to landmark Ryerson. We do not want to kick anyone out of their building. You know, this is not about taking ownership of a building. This is just about publicly recognizing the historic importance of that building. And that's, right? so that's, that's what we want. So they just landmarked um, and the Whitman Initiative, we were very supportive of this uh, 227 Duffield Place in Brooklyn, which is otherwise known as Abolitionist Place. Okay. And it was the home of a, of a couple who housed countless escaped slaves, right? They were, they were sort of a part of the Underground Railroad. And if anyone wants to read a good story, read the story of 227 Duffield, which doesn't look anything like it did uh, back in the day. And the property was bought recently by a developer who just had in mind to put up one of those, you know, glass encased skyscrapers that Brooklyn is now famous for. And then when we all started getting on him about the importance of that location, um, he wanted to put a museum for uh, abolition in the basement of the building. <laughs> so 
miraculously, after many years of fighting, 227 Duffield was landmarked a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Huge moment because, because it was the LPC, the Landmarks Preservation Commission, recognizing that a building doesn't necessarily have to look as it did, but the aura, right? Mm. The spirit of the place. Interesting. So they, they built out a new equity initiative around this that the 99 Ryerson Street structure really nicely fits into. So we are going up to bat for the third time uh, with the LPC and we well, now you have precedent. The, right, we have a precedent, but still it's a very political issue and we really could use all the help that we can get, uh, which includes signatures and anything else. So I'm just gonna put that out there and yes. say, if there's any listener who would like to help, one way you can directly reach us is through email, um, walt at waltwhitmaninitiative.org. Um, and, you know, propose something. We're just about to start the campaign. We're, we're just talking to the NYC LGBTQ Historic Sites Project. They also are very invested in having this uh, recognized and, and honored. So thank you, Andrew, for letting me go on and on. You can no, see I'm, no, it's so- I'm on my pedestal. <laughs> No, it's so important. It's also like uh, your passion transfers over to me. Like even just like I now in casual conversation with those mentioned the Ryerson Street House and just the importance of recognizing place and like where you're situated Mm. and like mention um, a place I really want to visit like when um, things really start to open up again is the African-American Museum of Nassau County in Hempstead. And again, very, there's, it's so important that it's there in Hempstead because that was such right. a site of abolitionism and freed slaves. And there's a reason it's called Freeport right near there. It was for freed slaves. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, is that through Hofstra? Cause I know that they have a really great archive. It was established if I'm, sh- Remember my history through NASA Community College did an exhibit with Black Mm. History Month, like years ago in the 1960s. Yeah, so like hopefully (laughs) all of our conversations here, they get ideas for like places to visit if you live in the New York City area or Northeast, but even just wherever you're situated. Or places to wish you could visit when things open up a bit more. And And yet there are Zoom tours and things like that. Yeah, and they're and they're doing really wonderful jobs with virtual tours and yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to be many. doing a tour of of the Ryerson Street, oh, you know, oh. where this the neighborhood with Untapped Cities pretty quickly, pretty Very soon. Cool. So Untapped Cities is a really great um, nonprofit that does a lot of these historic tours. I can already tell we're going to have a real job footnoting this interview. Which is not a bad thing. thing. It's going to be wonderful because there's so much that everyone can now listen and look for events that you're doing, Karen. And, you know, and I I know I'll continue to promote queering Edith Wharton just because that like raises everyone's eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) It's so enjoyable to like (laughs) go against the stodginess, which is so antithetical to her. But uh, you might as well throw in Henry James while you're at it. Oh, that's really? True. That's true. And oh, yeah. And also, if you are 
I would say mostly in the New York City area. Um, and if you've never gone, go to Emma Lazarus's townhouse because it is such a beautiful building. Like talk about beautiful buildings. Well, um, I love anytime you're near um, NYU, it's like just a few streets up. But again, see, whenever I get you on, Karen, we can just go on and on about all of <laughs> we find We finally have somebody. I've, I've been a poor partner and we finally have somebody to geek out about like minor points of of interest like lesser sorry lesser known points of interest uh throughout new york and new jersey somebody who can keep up with andrew geographic sorry in terms of <laughs> geographical milieu yeah no karen and i are definitely fantastic oh geographically yeah. uh you know we have a certain eccentricity no, it's good it's good you deserve a challenge every now and again instead of just bowling over me every every week well and no, Adam, it, it ties in especially with whitman look at the screensaver behind me there only <laughs> a sedentary life yeah. we are out there just like here, walt here. wanted us to, to here, be here. So, well, he might have also given us a podcast title so we appreciate that um, absolutely so thank you so much karen thank you for your time for your oh yeah. this was so much fun guys oh, adam for us as and well. andrew you you all are an amazing team it, it has been really a pleasure Aww. thank you so adam that was our second to last episode before our final winter season can you believe it i am a gog <laughs> so can you tell our listeners what they can expect with our final episode. Oh God. Um, so this was an episode that we put a lot of thought and I think a lot of heart into. It's a two part, it's a single episode with two parts. And those two parts are a sort of discussion and deconstruction of the issue of mental unwellness in university, particularly at the graduate level. Um, the part that I was involved in was the um, theme of depression, anxiety, things like that, like the sort of the sort of the uh, the continuous pressures mm -hmm. on the mental health of students in the university. And the part that Andrew was involved in, were the traumatic pressures, mm -hmm. uh, sexual assault, mm -hmm. bullying, all, all, all of those things. The, so I'm really proud that we managed to put this episode together that you will hear. Um, I'm also really proud, uh, aside, from the, aside from the subject matter, this is mostly Andrew's doing, I think, was that this was a real coming together moment for um, members of our, of our writing group, which we have in parallel to the show, which Andrew, Andrew's there every day. And our, our two special guests, Mary and Erica are there every day. Um, and I, I'm there like once a week. Um, but no, I mean, those friendships are real. I was not friends with Mary maybe half a year ago or with Erica. And now I am. And that's 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 one of the real accomplishments of this 
podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Erica, of course, is a um, has a master's degree in social work, and so she's the one leading us through this discussion and bringing in her own perspective where it's applicable mm-hmm. and where she where she wishes. And it's it's just a really it's hard. Yeah, it's a difficult episode and for us to have done, but also the vulnerability that we felt. But the empowerment that, you know, I feel now speaking out about what happened to me, but I also share a poem, which was really um, difficult to read aloud for the first time, but the group was extremely supportive, of course. Um, And we're actually going to listen to it soon for editing. So we're going to try to all do a virtual editing, community building type of experience. That editing Um, session is going to have a two drink minimum. I don't know. Well, um, I think it's been so powerful, just even the support that's come from the English department in my experience with my own narrative. And yeah, so our final episode is one that we are really candid in and transitions us to a break into the spring season. But I know when we come back in the spring, we already have some really exciting uh, episodes that we'll talk about in our last um, our teaser for the finale of the season, I'm sure. And we'll have everything from STEM discussions that we've done. Um, someone who is actually taking up uh, their own business of mentoring graduate students or those who are interested in PhD oh, programs. Yeah, and we're actually going to start something new that we can now announce, which is um, every other week, we're going to try a new model. So, you know, give us your feedback on at Ivory Boiler Room, our Twitter handle, um, or the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook. And we are going to do a writing roundtable where we'll have more informal, shorter episodes probably no longer than 45 minutes. And there will be discussions that you'll be privy to from those who agree in the writing group to record um, responses to a topic that we pose. Uh, So that's gonna be really exciting. Yeah, because we've been listening to your feedback and we've noticed that the episodes that are about us and our group and our, you know, our little little tribe that we've brought together, just get a lot more traction, a lot more people listen to them. Yeah, and you get to know more about Adam and I. And um, I mean, we like learning about our guests, which makes sense because we're really inquisitive in- We already know about ourselves. Yeah, but you're right. Um, We're we're wise. I'm speaking to now, anyone listening, I'm speaking directly to you. Uh, You may not know a lot about us, which is why our last episode of the season is so personal and really does show literally 
opens up the curtain on ourselves um, and turns the tables. Um, so we really hope that you all listening are enjoying the podcast. Um, we really like hearing from you. So even if you don't want to, you know, maybe you want to send a personal note or message to us, you can always do that um, at yeah, our email addresses, which I'll attach to this episode, just because we don't always do it. Um, but I think it's going to be just important for the more um, personal we get in our episodes. And like, especially if you have questions to ask us, um, when you do it in a public forum, it can be difficult. But I do want to say you can always also tweet, direct tweet us too, if you right. want. Yeah, you can, you can direct message us on Twitter, <laughs> at Ivory Boiler Room. You can direct message us on Facebook through our Facebook group, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Um, plus I believe uh, the podcast uh, platforms allow for direct feedback. Yes. If you wanna send us yeah. fan mail. Yeah, and we've gotten an audio recording before, which was really exciting. So I like that. If you wanna send an audio recording to Anchor, um, voicemail is always appreciated. Um, so we thank you all. I mean, we've now passed six months, at least. Um, and in about two months in the summer was the first time I posed this to Adam. And he responded to my inquiry of, oh, what would everyone out there think about a graduate student navigating academia podcast? Um, this is what yeah, I and I said something like, I'd like to be a part of it. Yeah. And then Andrew shoots back, do you want to be my co-host? Yeah. And you agreed. I agreed. Which and I remember it was not 100 percent certain. Real, well, I think you chose <laughs> you chose wisely. No, but it was a very if anyone wants the real descriptive version of this, it was very sultry in July, I think. No, 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 it wasn't. It was June because I was still yeah. home with the parents quarantining. Everything, everything is sultry when Andrew is propositioning people on uh, at random on the internet. Oh my! No, 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 no. That does not happen. But <laughs> I remember that I had like been enjoying outdoor writing a lot because I was zooming with Adam. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and we had started. So we were zooming together a lot, and Andrew was constantly like sitting on the deck. Yeah, in my parents' backyard, and there were birds chirping. It was like a very, um, would the word be oral? Not oral <laughs> experience. <laughs> I'm thinking of A U R A. Lonely dreams. No, no, no. A U R A L. That is a word. Yeah, that's a word. It's just, it's just a very difficult word to. To express precisely what you mean because <laughs> of this <with>. confusion <laughs> but uh yeah so i thank adam for agreeing to that inquiry and proposition and yeah we made it happen and without we wouldn't have this kind of support without our listeners of course and, our listeners and especially our writers and our writers and um so many friendships have been created and 
Um, the faculty support, I see you all, I thank you. Yeah. Especially with opening up about my own journey as a survivor, I see you all, thank you. Um, to the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, I thank you. Um, Adam and I have an exciting opportunity to spread the word about our podcast. So we really do appreciate that. Um, I think that's it. So okay. here is to next week when we pull back the curtain, not on our writing group, but on our lives as PhD students, but- Last chance to back out. Yeah, I mean, we've committed. Um, don't, don't say you're not tempted. I mean, I think since we've already recorded it, it's out there for me already. All right. Like my voice. Good, is I mean, it's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. So, so now we're going to end this time. recording for all of you uh, because I'm sure Adam and I are going to now start to psychoanalyze our choices. Art, <laughs> where have you been? But we don't need everyone to hear the too much of the behind the scenes. Okay, well, <laughs> there's only so much curtain I'm theatrically, theatrically going to pull back. I'm not going to do yeah, this. Is, this isn't just this isn't just showing people the how the how the props get set and how the sets get uh, hoisted. This is like showing the the lead ballerina messily crying and the anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Catch, catch you guys later. Yeah, like, I'll go back to my favorite fan of the opera for analogies. But basically, we will show you, you know, the mirror scene when Christine Daae gets pulled in by the Phantom, and you yeah. finally start to see the gears of the opera house. But we're not actually going to show you where the performers are uh, running behind the scenes to make their entrances. Like that's a little, you know, there's some things that we need to save. I think, I think we've tortured this metaphor more than the- Oh yeah, this is like my metaphor I carry now into every episode. His favorite <laughs> prima donna. It's so, it's, it's, it's the easiest for me to reach to. Uh, and it was, All right. and okay, I'll stop it. I'll stop Say it, goodbye, that's another metaphor. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, we hope you all are safe and healthy out there and Thank you again. Yeah. Till next time.